you can open up your copy of the scriptures, which we'll get to in a moment, to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 16. We're going to look at chapters 16 and 17 this morning in this book, but I wanted to share uh, two things with you uh, before we get started. Uh, first, I hadn't necessarily planned to, but I don't know where he went, but I wanted to say thank you to Marcos uh, for sharing uh, what you shared. Oh, there you are. Uh, thank you for uh, sharing that. I'm grateful uh, for that. It was an encouragement to me, and I just... Uh, by way of what he shared, I wanted to let you know, that even this Wednesday night, we're going to start something that's hopefully going to be a monthly gathering. We're just calling it pursuing and practicing. And what we're doing uh, in that time, I'm going to try to lead it, whether it's me and one other person or 20 of us or whoever. Uh, we're going to try to come together uh, to understand what the scriptures teach about the gifts of the Spirit and then to pray for those in that moment, but even more so ongoingly in our lives. Uh, pray for the Spirit to give those gifts. And then even as, as God grants them, try to practice the sharing of those things with each other who are there at that gathering and then encourage uh, to share those things even in other contexts as well and give some encouragement and guidance about those things. That's happening starting this Wednesday at 6. But the other thing I wanted to note before we turn to the text, um, if you've been part of our church for a long time, I'm talking like multiple years, uh, you may have noticed or maybe it just kind of bypass your observation. The last two years, really since COVID set in uh, back in early 2020, um, we stopped passing offering plates in our worship gathering, we're not doing that this morning. We used to do that for years and years. Uh, we would pass offering plates around during our gathering, but we stopped doing that uh, out of short-term necessity uh, with COVID. But then we have not started it back up, uh, that practice. We're not planning to restart, uh, at least any time in the foreseeable future, passing around offering plates. But one thing myself and the pastors were realizing is that in not doing that, not having that embedded into the, the order of our worship service, it could be, and I think maybe has unintentionally happened, where we could start to view our generosity and our giving somehow as like detached from worship, that it's just something we do as a kind person or as a generous person. And instead of doing it as part of a worship act, we may just click a button online or, or things like that. And we want to at least recapture uh, a regular encouragement for us as a church family, not like like, uh, like driving you to, you got to give money, things like that. But we want each Sunday to, right before we open the Word of God together, as we have this moment of pause, to remind you and to encourage you to be generous with the funds that God's given you. Uh, we have a common mission that we call reaching the nations and the generations with the gospel of Christ. And uh, the Spirit does that work, but He uses human means and ministries and ministers and missionaries. And uh, your gifts help us be able to fund the many things that God's doing here locally and internationally. And so, uh, we'll mention some of these week to week, but there's several ways you can give to the general fund of the church. They're uh, represented in those icons there. There's uh, The first one is there's offering boxes at the back of the auditorium. If you want to actually, as part of your worship on Sunday morning, uh, bring a, a check or cash or, or whatever, you, there's uh, locked boxes back there that you can drop those in. Uh, the middle two are things that you could do digitally, electronically. Uh, you can go to our church website. There's ways that you can donate uh, online or even via text. If you are tech savvy and want to do that, uh, you can donate that way. And then the last one is just traditional snail mail, if, whether through your bank or just wanting to, to mail a check into the church office. You're more than welcome to do that, and that all comes to the same common fund. So uh, we'll mention that regularly uh, on Sunday mornings to, as an encouragement, but also as a thank you to you uh, for your generosity. Uh, we are an incredibly generous church family, and I think that's evidence of God's grace in our collective uh, life as a church. So thank you for how you have been generous, and just hear this as a, a commendation to reattach worship and generosity, uh, to not just have that be a, a thing that you do detached from the worship of Christ, but it's something, even if you use these electronic means, that you do out of reverence, out of regard for Jesus. So I wanted to share that. This morning, if you have found Deuteronomy chapter 16, we're going to start here in a moment down near the end of that chapter at verse 18. Uh, last week, Pastor Larry preached up through most of chapter 16. Uh, he left off at verse 17. Uh, but even doing a quick scan of the text that we're going to look at, you'll see that this is going to be cover the subject of justice. Uh, and uh, young kids, you may not know what justice means. Maybe you've heard it at the Pledge of Allegiance or something, liberty and justice for all. 
The best way I can describe if you're a kid and you're wondering what justice is, is if you have a sibling and you say to your mom or dad or grandma or grandpa or teacher, whoever, you say, you hear something come out of your mouth, that's not fair. What you are wanting is justice. That's the thing you feel like you don't have, is uh, you want justice. Uh, Grown-ups, I think you know what justice is, and justice has really been kind of like a hot-button issue the last couple years. Not that it wasn't before that, um, but there's been tons of public debates about anything from social justice, racial justice, criminal justice. It's been really in the forefront of public dialogue, uh, even in society at large. And in God's common grace, I think he has given, even outside the church, he has given us some collective wisdom about justice, about how to pursue it, how to practice it. Uh, it's not just relegated to the church. We have learned a lot as human beings over the millennia of our existence about justice, both good and bad. And I, I was thinking about this, uh, and an embodiment of worldly wisdom of justice, things we've learned uh, over the millennia, can be seen in what people have come to refer to as Lady Justice. And I wanted to put a picture of one example of a depiction of Lady Justice. Uh, some of you may have seen picture of this or heard of this before. There's uh, statues of her in various or outside various courthouses all over the world, all sorts of different cultures. And what she is supposed to be is a personification of the principles of justice. Like she's supposed to visually represent principles of justice. And there's three traits that you see that are true of her on most depictions of quote unquote lady justice. One that you can see on this picture if you uh, can look closely enough is that she has a blindfold on. Uh, and what that is to communicate is in the process of justice there's supposed to be impartiality. Right, that, that you're not kind of, as people come to you and you're trying to decide a case, you're not trying to peek to see, okay, who is this? That like, what, is this a wealthy person, an influential person? You try to be blind. People say justice is blind, right? So there's impartiality shown in the blindfold. She's typically holding, the second thing would be a set of scales. Uh, it's not sitting on a table, but she's holding it in her hand. Uh, that, and what that is supposed to depict in the uh, principles of justice is what I would refer to as objectivity. Uh, that in the deciding of a case, the rendering of a decision or a verdict, justice is supposed to be considering of evidence, right? Weighing of cases, not having a foregone conclusion, but genuinely hearing what people have to say, what witnesses have to say. Uh, she is holding a scale. And then the third thing that she's holding out, at least on this statue pretty prominently, the third thing you see in depictions of her a lot is a sword. So she's got a blindfold, scales in one hand, a sword in the other. And what that sword is supposed to show in our collective human wisdom is that sometimes justice requires punishment. That there's an enforcement that needs to come. That there's a consequence that comes as a result of the process of justice. And so our world has gained, there's much to be said for these depictions of justice and what it's to look like, how it's supposed to happen. There's wisdom embedded in that. But what we as the people of God should do is not just co-opt worldly wisdom that we've accumulated over the millennia, but when we think about any subject of life, even justice, we need to come to the divine revelation that we have in Scripture. To not just say, what have humans learned over time, but what has God said to us? Uh, because scriptures are infallible. Uh, this principle of lady justice is not, but when God has spoken, we can trust and do what he calls us to do. And that's what we're going to see in today's text. In Deuteronomy 16 and 17, we're going to see Moses saying things to the people of God in the nation of Israel in his day uh, that may resonate with these image, this image, like of impartiality and of fairness, of objectivity, and even of enforcement of justice. But when we come to this text, we're hearing from God himself. Not just the collective wisdom of the ages, but from our creator. And so I want to read for us, uh, this is going to be, a, these are longer texts typically as we go through the book of Deuteronomy, but I want to read for us here in just a second, Deuteronomy 16, start at verse 18, and then I'm going to read down through the next chapter, uh, at least about half of it, through chapter 17, verse 13. 
okay? So we're kind of starting in the middle of a chapter. We're going to end in the middle of a chapter. Uh, But I want to encourage you to follow along as Moses continues his speech to the nation of Israel. They're about to finally go in the promised land soon after he gives this speech. And there uh, are principles in this text that Moses wants to give them about what justice should look like as they go into the land. They're not going back to Eden where there's going to be no conflict and no disagreement. They're entering into a very broken place as broken people. And so they're going to need guidance about how to live justly with each other. Okay, so follow along with me as I read this and we'll walk back through it and see what the Lord would have us to hear. So Deuteronomy 16 starting in verse 18. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not plant any tree as an asherah beside the altar of the Lord your God that you shall make. And you shall not set up a pillar which the Lord your God hates. You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep in which is a blemish, any defect whatever, for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. If there is found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, a man or woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them or the sun or the moon or any of the hosts of heaven which I have forbidden and it is told you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is true, And certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death. And afterward, the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. If any case arises requiring decision between one kind of homicide and another, one kind of legal right and another, or one kind of assault and another, any case within your towns that is too difficult for you, then you shall arise and go up to the place that the Lord your God will choose. And you shall come to the Levitical priests and to the judge who is in office in those days, and you shall consult them, and they shall declare to you the decision. Then you shall do according to what they declare to you from, the, from that place that the Lord will choose. And you shall be careful to do according to all that they direct you, according to the instructions that they give you, and according to the decision which they pronounce to you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside from the verdict that they declare to you, either to the right hand or to the left. The man who acts presumptuously by not obeying the priest, who stands to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall die. So you shall purge the evil from Israel, and all the people shall hear and fear and not act presumptuously again. This is the word of the Lord. I want to summarize this text and what I believe the message of it is uh, from Moses to these people and from God to us this way. Uh, and I, I think it'll be up on the screen, is as the people of God, we should handle accusations and disagreements justly. That's the basic summary. As the people of God, we should handle accusations and disagreements justly. And I, w- I want to walk back through this text talking about justice and how Moses giving commands and how those apply to us uh, by speaking under two categories. The, the first one is going to uh, be, I'm going to call rendering judgments, like how do we actually go about making decisions. Uh, and then the second category that kind of encompasses this, the end of today's text is going to be respecting judgments. Like once judgments have been made, how do we actually respond to them? Like how do we react to them? Uh, so those are the two categories we're going to talk in is how do we make judgments? Like how do we render judgments? 
in these difficult situations, then how do we handle those judgments? How do we respect those judgments? I want to acknowledge as we get into this text, and you may hear us do this over and over again in Deuteronomy, the challenge we have in in reading a text that was uh, spoken and written to a people who are under a very different covenant with God than what we are now. Uh, The way I would explain this uh, briefly is this. As Moses was speaking to the nation of Israel in his day, and I'm just going to use our current terminology. Uh, They would not have used these terminologies. But we tend to think of the separation of church and state, right? The separation of what is religious and what is political. For them, in their day, those would have been one and the same. Right? They, they were a theocracy. Like they were the religious and the political. The religious and the society were one and the same. Right? There wasn't like a subset of the religious Israel and then the rest of the community. It was to be one and the same. So as Moses is speaking to them, those things overlap. When he gives commands about worship and about these judgments, priests were making judgments. Right? There, there's things like that. They were one and the same, the political and the religious. Uh, so I want to note that I'm going to be mostly speaking as we unpack this about if we, if we peel those apart for our day and age of the church and the state, like how we govern things in the church and how we govern things in society, I'm going to mostly be speaking to the church side of things. Like as, That's why I said, as the people of God, we should do these things. Uh, so I'm mostly going to talk to how we handle things in the church. But I also want to note, and then we'll get right into this text, this text does not... I'll say it positively. This text more addresses individual cases, right, than it does, like, societal structures. It's kind of in vogue right now, and it's healthy and good in our society to talk about systemic justice and things that are, like, at a society level or at group level. Those are healthy and good conversations to talk about. This text is talking more about specific people, like isolated cases. Like, how do you handle those things? How do you weigh evidence? How do you render judgments? So I'm mostly going to be speaking about those personal cases, those, those things, not justice things as a society or a group at large, but how do we handle individual micro-level justice, not macro level justice, okay? All right, first category, rendering judgments. I I think you could summarize starting in verse 18 all the way down through verse 7 of chapter 17 under this heading, rendering judgments. Moses is giving directions about how to make judgments in complicated cases where there's accusations made or there's disagreements between people. I want to show you a few principles that Moses lays down uh, for the people in the first paragraph, verses 18 through 20. Notice a couple things here. As he's describing this going into the land, the first thing he tells them is that they're going to need to appoint judges and officers in all the towns that they go into, right? For a whole generation, they've lived in a huge camp, right? Like where they've just been in one location. Uh, They had a centralized way through the person of Moses himself to handle cases. There would be people who handled them kind of more in small scale, but if things got kind of sideways and complicated, they could just go right there in the camp to Moses bring it up to him but as they go into these cities and spread out Moses is saying you're going to need different people in each of these places to handle these things to weigh these cases as people bring them up as there's conflict and disagreement but he tells them how they're to judge how they're to make judgments right the end of verse 18 he says they shall judge the people not period they shall judge the people with righteous judgment So there's a certain way they're to make decisions. There's a certain way. They don't just do what's right in their own eyes, right? Like they don't just get to think, well, this feels right to me in this case, and this feels right in another. They're to judge the people with righteous judgment. There's a a pattern there to follow, right, of what actual justice looks like. And the reason he tells them that positively, like judge with righteous judgment, is because he knows the temptation they're going to face that he mentions in verse 19. They're going to be tempted to what he calls pervert justice. That they're going to be tempted to not do, make righteous judgments, to, to be skewed in how they make decisions, to, to pervert justice. And he mentions a few ways they could pervert 
justice. He says one way they could do it is through partiality. That's mentioned in verse 19, right? That they could be partial. So you could imagine if there's a disagreement amongst people, there's conflict, and they come to a judge, they come to someone to decide their case. You could imagine if that person is friends or has a long track record with one of the parties, that almost out of hand, before they even hear anything, they could already know what they're going to decide. Like, oh, I know so-and-so. I don't even need to hear this case. Let's just move on. There could be partiality that's given to someone who's wealthy. Like, if you think, man, I don't want to render a bad judgment against this person because I may need their generosity in time to come. Or maybe I've benefited from their generosity already. There could be this partiality instead of really hearing the case for what it is. And Moses is saying, don't, have, don't allow these people to pervert justice. If we go back to Lady Wisdom, it could have been like they're trying to peek through the blindfold, right? Like to see, oh yeah, now I know what my judgment's going to be. It's just as it's supposed to truly be blind, not a respecter of persons, right? But another temptation he mentions that they could fall into that would pervert justice is the temptation to bribery. That's mentioned in verse 19 also, isn't it? He says, you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eye of the wise. So even wise people, people who have good insight, who are, are godly people, if money is brought to them or some sort of favor is brought to them, like, hey, if you render this judgment, then maybe you'll get some kickback in this way or maybe, uh, maybe this will be granted to you. You could imagine how even a, a godly person may be tempted, uh, if you think about those scales of Lady Justice, to allow one side to be pushed down further than the other. Like with, and weighed down with money to say, okay, that, that, this side seems way more appealing to me, not on the merits of the facts, but on the merits and the basis of what I may get if I decide that way, right? And bribery can corrupt justice. So you see that this call to not pervert justice, to be fair, to be impartial. And I would say in this first paragraph, you see God's heart, when it comes to the issue of justice, you see God's heart for the individual, not just for the society at large to make sure that things function well at a society level, but you see, even in verse 19, that God cares about the individual person and justice being served even for the, in every single individual. The end of verse 19, he says that bribery can subvert the cause of the righteous. And what he means is that if there's someone who's deciding a case and they decide it unfairly, that there could be a righteous person who really did no wrong, who, who, whose actions didn't warrant this judgment, who, but because of a, an act of a judge that's unfair, a, a decider that decides something unfairly for them, there could be a thwarting or a subverting of this person's very life. And God cares for the individual. God wants to have the righteous be stood up for, to be defended, right? And then I love positively, after Moses has given these negative commands, don't pervert justice, don't show partiality, don't accept a bribe. In verse 20, he says positively, he says justice and only justice you shall follow. Like it's hugely significant uh, in the heart of Moses and the heart of God is that his people be guided as they decide cases, as they weigh disagreements, as they handle conflict and disputes, to not be guided by fleshly impulses, like to not be swayed by uh, those who are powerful or rich, who are more assertive, those who make threats to us, things like that, to, to govern and to decide things fairly, justly. He says, justice and justice only you shall follow. So there's a few principles that are there. I would note as an aside, uh, just how important it is in the handling of cases, in the deciding of, of things, the weighing of things, how important it is to have multiple people involved in that. Did you know how he starts? He says, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns. I appreciate that, that he doesn't specify exactly what they're doing, but there's two categories of people, right? There's judges and officers. There's a multiplicity of people that are going to weigh these things. And then both of them are plural on top of that. Not just a judge and an officer, but you'd have these different categories. And within those categories, you'd have multiple people as well. Because it's, it's very easy for one person to be corrupted. It's much harder for a group to be corrupted if they're trying to decide and to weigh these things together. That's why we have juries, right, in our society, not just a judge. But uh, it's important to have multiplicity of people involved. So he starts with some principles. 
in verses 18 through 20. I will acknowledge verses 21 through verse 1 of chapter 17. And when you initially read these things, they feel a little bit out of place. Uh, he's been talking about justice and judgments. And then he talks about these Asherah poles and, and things like that. And then he returns to talking about justice and how to handle cases. Uh, this is somewhat speculative. I don't think we can know exactly why Moses included these here, uh, telling them don't plant trees that are going to become Asherah poles. Uh, don't uh, put them next to your, your places of worship. I think one thing we could say is that in Moses' mind, at least, there's a connection between compromise with God and conflict with each other. That, that when we start to compromise our worship of God, when we start to think we can just worship him however we want, whenever we want, or worship even other gods, and we start to compromise with God, it should not surprise us that we have an increased conflict with each other, right? Like if we actually worshiped God how we were supposed to, we would all get along. We would have no need for judges and officers, right? But at the further we deviate from right worship of the Lord, there's going to be an increase of conflict, right? And thus the need for these principles of this is how you handle disagreements. This is how you render judgments within the people of God. We don't, even in the New Testament era, even post-Jesus coming, we don't yet live in an era that is conflict-free, though, do we? We have not fully figured out how to worship God perfectly and rightly. We don't have capacity for that yet. We still are tempted to, to wrong worship, wrong practice toward God. And it, even as churches, the best of churches in our world are still going to have at least the temptation and typically the presence of conflict and disagreement among its members. That that's part of living in this fallen world. And so Moses knew this for his generation. We know it for our generation that we need processes by which to handle things. Not just broad principles of this is like big picture things to keep in mind, but actual process, actual tracks to run on of how we handle disagreements, how we handle accusations, allegations, things like that. And that's what you see in verses 2 through 7. And I want, I want to mention briefly what Moses is describing as the process for handling accusations, the process for handling these things. So Moses in, in verses 2 and following is imagining a scenario as they get into the land where there is someone who has fallen in or willfully fallen in, not passively, but become a worshiper of false gods. Who, who they, they've made this a pattern of their life. Uh, they are doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord is how he describes it in verse 2. And that is made known somehow or discovered amongst the Israelites. That that is either observed or told to certain Israelites. And Moses is telling them, when you hear of that or when you observe that, these are the things, this is how that should get handled. These are the steps by which to handle that. So first, I, I would note this. He says that you, down finally once he's described the situation, uh, when you... Verse 4, he says, when it is told to you and you hear of it, this is first step. He says, then you shall inquire diligently. That is hugely significant. Then you shall inquire diligently. We are so trigger happy, I think, uh, as human beings and in our day and age that when we hear of anything that, that seems distasteful or ungodly in a person and we hear that said of that person we often totally bypass this step of inquiring diligently and we just assume it's true we just take it at face value and we instantly believe it about that person and sometimes we even go and tell other people about it we we don't we are terrible at this inquire diligently in our culture and I, I think that has bled into the church where we hear things, we hear uh, statements made about people and we just believe it without even asking a question. We, we believe it without even looking into it at all. But Moses is trying to, to tell them and the Spirit I think would tell us as, his peop as the people of Christ today to not make hasty, uninformed judgments and decisions about people. When we hear of things, to inquire diligently to see if they are true. Proverbs eighteen seventeen is a text you should familiarize yourself with. Some of you may know it by heart. Uh, it says that the one who states his case first seems right, 
until the other comes and examines him. And we need to remember that second half, that when you hear an accusation, it always feels right to just believe it and to not even ask questions. But it's important that not to ignore the accusation as if there's no truth to it at all, but to inquire and to see, is there truthfulness to this? Like, it, what, why are they saying this? Why are they suggesting this about this person, what they meant, what they did? We live in an age of instant outrage. And I think if we just believe what we instantly hear without any question... What we're going to start to do, I've seen this happen so much in my own heart and other people's hearts, is we start, we have a narrative that's established right at the start, and then everything else we see just confirms that. Like, and we don't even pause to ask, is that true? Right? That, so it's so important, he says, inquire diligently when you hear of this, when these accusations are made. But then another thing in the process of inquiring diligently that I think is implied here as they're trying to make certain that it's actually been done, is that there's to be witnesses involved. That there's to be confirmation even from additional people that this has indeed taken place. There's a phrase in here that he uses on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses down in verse 6. The one who is to die shall be put to death. There's an importance of having corroborating testimony of other people. That, that we want to strive as the people of God for more than just he said, she said, right? That, that there should be a, 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 at all possible a pursuit of other people to vouch for what was said, to, to vouch for the evidence that this person is presenting. And I, I think implied in this, this need for multiple witnesses, is there should be an assumption of innocence, not of guilt in the person. Like that we don't just default think this person's guilty of this thing unless we can get them off the hook. But that we assume as far as our judgments that they're innocent until there is undeniable, un unquestionable corroboration from multiple people that this thing really did take place this way. And so there, there's, there's this assumption of innocence, this need for corroboration. I will note, just as an aside, and so much could be said about this, I completely understand that when it comes to cases of abuse and mistreatment that happens in private, that this principle can be very difficult to apply, the need to have multiple witnesses to those things. I, I am not suggesting, and I don't want anybody to be nervous, that if there's ever something that only you know about you and one other person, that if you come and talk to the pastors, that we're going to not believe you if there's not multiple people who have seen this. We, we will do due diligence to inquire in, the health, in healthy ways and healthy processes to try to discern what is going on. Um, but these are biblical texts that are important principles is that there needs to be corroboration. And the last thing I would show process-wise here is that he says the hand of the and they're talking about like capital punishment cases here okay so the stakes are high he says uh, that the hand of the witnesses who testify against person shall be first in throwing the stones to kill them that is significant like that he is telling these people that if you make a statement against this person if you are saying yes i saw them false worship i saw them uh planting this ashra, I saw them worshiping these gods, you better be certain of what you saw. Because you are publicly declaring to a judge and to God's people, this is true of this person, I saw this. And Moses, via God's spirit, I think is telling these people by saying, you're going to be the first one to throw the stone. He's one Can you imagine how seriously you at least should take that? If you're going to publicly make a statement and then you know, I'm, I can't just make a statement and then just watch the process unfold, but I'm going to actually have my hand be the first one to pick up a stone and throw to kill this person? Do you not think that that would at least cut down on just making speculative testimony? Or like connecting dots that you're like 90% are sure are connected? Like it, w it would give pause of making assertions and accusations about people. And I think we need to recover that <laughs> slowness to make accusation. I see this happen all the time. And I feel tempted in my own heart where we're pretty sure such and such happened. We're pretty sure they meant this. We're pretty sure this was their motivation for why they did this. If you are just pretty sure 
Do not say it with certainty. Do not assert it as a fact that you know. Like there, there should be a, not a refusal to witness against people, but there should be a slowness to say negative, condemning, accusing things of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We should be slow to give witness and we should be confident in the assertions that we make, not just speculative. These principles, uh, if we had more time, I, I would unpack these uh, in full. But these, these principles and processes of justice, of how you weigh things, how you hear testimony and disagreement and how you should be slow to render judgment, uh, I think you see reflected in the New Testament in two places. I'm just going to show these briefly, and then I would encourage you, if you want to take time to, to read through these texts more, uh, you can. But I want to show you in cases of church discipline, and then in cases of accusations against pastors or elders, where these principles, even from Deuteronomy 16 and 17, are applied forward to our age, to our era as the church. So first one is a famous text. It's from Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. This is Jesus himself, our Savior, teaching his disciples, teaching us how to handle conflict between each other when there's sin against each other. See if you don't hear echoes of Deuteronomy 16 and 17 in this. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector." I could preach a whole sermon on this. I may another time. Uh, but you see principles there, don't you? Uh, from Deuteronomy 16 and 17, this need for multiple witnesses, this need to do inquiry, right? Like to actually engage and figure out what is true here, not just to jump from one person said this, discipline out of the church, but like you're trying to hear what is the truthfulness of this? How's this actually happened? Is this brother or sister like willing to repent? Did they do this in the first place? And if so, like, are they willing to actually repent and be restored? Uh, there, and ultimately, in the New Testament age, we don't stone people, right, as the bearing of the sword. But there is an exclusion from the assembly that can come, right? If that person is found to be unrepentant and there's sin, there's an, the New Testament equivalent of the stoning is like saying, you can't be treated as a brother or sister anymore. We're not going to regard you that way. So there's echoes of that. And the other one is in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. This is the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy about how to govern churches, how to handle, in this text, he talks about how do you handle the, the complicated thing of when accusations are made against a pastor, when accusations are made against an elder, and see if this doesn't have echoes of Deuteronomy in it. So Paul wrote to Timothy uh, saying this. He said, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. There's echoes, isn't there, of Deuteronomy, the, the principles and processes that we saw there for them as they were about to go into Canaan. Paul is still giving to Timothy about how things should be handled in the church, the need for multiple witnesses, the seriousness of accusation, not the impossibility of a judgment being rendered, but the, the high standard there should be of judgments to be established. And he, he forbids prejudging and partiality. So we are to live these things out, even in our day and age, even within the life of the church. These principles and processes are there. So that's rendering judgments. This second part is going to be much shorter, respecting judgments. If we go back to Deuteronomy, if we're in chapter 17, if you put your eyes on verse 8, down through the end of what we read, that last long paragraph, I think a, a fair way to describe that text is the respecting of judgments. Uh, that the beginning is, how do you make judgments? Like, what are things to keep in mind? How do you actually reach a conclusion about this? This, then, is about how to respect those judgments once they are made. Moses knew from his own experience and just human, it's probably obvious uh, to anyone, but Moses knew this. As they went into the land and they get spread out, 
just as there had been in their camp thus far, there's going to continue to be cases that are complicated. There's going to continue to be ones that people at a local level are like scratching their heads like, we don't know what to do with this. Like We don't know how to handle this situation, how to even come close to a judgment about these things. And Moses anticipates that in verse 8, doesn't he? He talks about how if cases arise where you have to decide, it's like he's saying between one type of homicide and another. Like, was this murder or was this like manslaughter? Like, how do you handle those very different? Or maybe there's different types of illegal rights or another. Or he says, of one kind of an assault or another. Like, I don't know, is this like a trigger-happy homeowner who at any sniff of threat whatsoever just goes and guns the guy down? Or was there actually like warranted self-defense? Like they were truly under threat. Like you handle those things very different. And the cases could have been hard to know what to do. And so Moses prescribes for them kind of like a an appeals court, or like a higher court, so to speak, that they can appeal to, uh, that would be eventually based in Jerusalem, in the land. And he talks about in verse 9 that they should come with these cases to Levitical priests and to the judge who's in office in those days and consult them. And he says, and they shall declare to you the decision. Again, language of priests there is because their Venn diagram was like this, right? Like uh, they, the religious and the secular were one and the same. So there's priests involved in declaring what, how the law of God should be followed. But what I want to point out is in this text, this paragraph, you see that the judgments of those courts were to be final and they were to be respected, Right? He goes these next several sentences to great lengths, saying the same thing in different ways again and again and again, like, you all will respect the decisions that these people make. Like, you've appealed to them, you've, you've made your case to them, but they have rendered a verdict. And did you notice what Moses says should happen if people don't listen to those verdicts? He says they should be killed. Like, they should be stoned, right? And to us, that feels, we are a society that always feels like there's another appeal to make, another court to go to, another uh, person I can go to if I don't like this verdict or I don't like that verdict. We like to think there's a constant, in, uh, endless list of people I can appeal to. Moses is saying there's not an endless list. Like that these judgments, when they're made, they're final and they're to be respected. But why so severe? Like why would he say they needed to kill the people who would disregard those judgments. If you think about their Venn diagram of overlap, uh, to, to not respect the judgments of the priests and of the judges in their day would have led to absolute anarchy, not just within the church, but within their whole society, right? They, they, they would be, it'd be like the equivalent of us just disregarding police, disregarding courts, just, like there would be anarchy that would unfold and it, it's to be a deterrent to them. I think you see in verse 13 that people shall hear and fear and not act presumptuously again. So there would be a fear element, but even more, I think Moses wanted them to see these are God-given authorities. Like these are not just people who make judgments for no reason. These are God-given authorities and when they render a verdict, you should respect it and take it seriously. Not just discard it because you don't like it, right? And I, I'm thankful. I don't know if some of you know this, but I won't belabor this because it's a sermon, not a lecture about church government. But in our denomination, I don't know how many of you know this, we actually have, even outside of our church elders, we have uh, a, almost like an appeals court, like an ecclesiastical court, that if there's members of our church who think that our elders have mishandled a situation, there is a place that they can appeal. There's, there's a group, a body even outside of us that, that you can appeal to, uh, to, to get further inquiry and, and other eyeballs of, of trusted godly people to help in judgment, uh, which is a, a deep encouragement to me that we have something of the equivalent of this. Uh, and it can help us if we need to um, have correction of judgments that we make. But one thing I, I want to note in this text is that Moses wasn't assuming that these people making these decisions were all-knowing or infallible, that they would never get anything wrong. 
Like the very system of having multiple people and processes and all this stuff is assuming that these are fallen people that, that need help, that need other people. So he's not suggesting, and nor would I suggest that as pastors or as church leaders, when we make decisions or, or make judgments after inquiry through processes, that we, I would never suggest that we are infallible. We can and do make mistakes. We do our best to strive not to and follow the teaching of Scripture, to follow the guidance of the Spirit. But I would encourage us, and I know this could feel self-serving as a pastor saying this, but I think we need to regain in our culture a respect for the judgments of pastors, like for the decisions that church leaders make. I think it's become kind of uh, funny sometimes to, to joke about pastors being kind of fools or naive or kind of clumsy or don't, don't get it. And I, I, we do have our flaws. We, we have our shortcomings and we are fallible. Uh, but when churches make judgments, especially when it comes to cases like church discipline, the handling of accusations and things like that, those should be respected. They shouldn't be easily dismissed or brushed aside. They should be regarded with respect. And this, our fallibility is why we need processes, right? And why we need plurality of people involved in the process. None of us are just making judgments on our own. That said, I want to close by just contrasting for a moment the, who I started with, Lady Justice, with God himself. Okay, and follow me uh, for just a moment. We should love justice. We should try to do justice uh, because God loves justice and because God is just. It's not just something he likes, but it, it's an attribute of him, of our God, of our creator, of our savior, but God is more than just just, isn't he? Like justice is not the only attribute of God. God is many other things, isn't he? He's also gracious and merciful, to name a few. And if, if we contrast our God, our Savior, with Lady Justice, and we consider our offense against him, like we consider his handling of our case, of our treason against him, our rebellion against him. A couple of things that are important to note, differences of him and Lady Justice. Lady Justice is not real, first of all. God is. He is a real being. He is our creator. He is the one we must answer to. He is a real judge. But unlike Lady Justice, God doesn't need to wear a blindfold, does he? Like God has no blindfold, and God doesn't need a blindfold because God is not corruptible, is he? Like he can't be swayed by arguments or by gifts or by bribes. Like his eyes cannot be blinded. and He doesn't need to blind them, right? He, he can see all and does see all. And he is holy and blameless as he does. Like he sees everything. He knows everything and God doesn't need I would suggest doesn't need scales like Lady Justice has right like God doesn't need something outside of himself to tell him what is right and who's wrong and what judgment deserves God knows doesn't he he knows all he's omniscient he knows everything and that should give us some pause because God's all-knowingness means he sees our sin even more than we do doesn't he like we maybe give ourselves a pass sometimes. God sees our sin fully, every bit of it. The sins of when you were a two-year-old and you don't remember. God knows those, doesn't he? The sins in our senile nature when we're older and we don't even know God sees those things. God sees all. He, he doesn't need scales. He sees it all. And God, in his justice, cannot ignore what he sees. Right? Like he can't just, if he had scales, he can't just say, okay, I see all this sin, boom, just knocking it off. And let's just ignore that, pretend that didn't happen. That would not be a just thing for God to do. That would be a, a perversion of justice, wouldn't it? In the spirit of Deuteronomy, if God just ignored it and pretended like it didn't happen. So God doesn't need a blindfold. God doesn't need scales. He sees it all. He sees it even more than we do. But that third thing that we see with Lady Justice, that sword that she holds, like God is real and he really, he's not a, God the Father's not a physical being, but 
you better believe he carries a sword of justice. Right? And there is judgment that should come down on you and should come down on me for those sins that God sees, those sins that God knows. That sword should come down upon us. But the gloriously good news is this, is that God, he doesn't just drop his sword. That'd be unjust, wouldn't it? He wielded it justly, but he aimed it at someone other than you. He aimed it, he, he wielded it toward his son Jesus. As he has seen our sin, as he sees it for the ugliness that it is, he has taken his sword and instead of cutting us down and inflicting the judgment that should come to us for our sin, he has done that to his very son. He has put him to death in our place at the cross because our sin got counted to Jesus. And God the Father in his justice put his son to death. And if he was just just, he would have done that to us, wouldn't he? But because he's merciful, he did it to another in our place. And so he put his own son to death. Christ was laid in the tomb having suffered the judgment that should come upon us. But God the Father raised him back up from the dead. That Sunday morning, long ago, on the third day, raised him back up from the dead to show that his judgment was done, to show that the, his wrath had fully been poured out upon Jesus. And the good news to us then is that that resurrected Jesus has ascended to heaven and he now, as a human being, has authority over all. And he invites us, if we repent of our sins and put our trust in him, he invites us to join him, to be joined with him and be received by God the Father. And someday, he is going to return from heaven and his return is described as judgment at that time. Right? That the human resurrected Jesus is going to exercise final judgment upon humanity. There's this picture in Revelation of all of humanity being raised from the dead. That will include you, that will include me. This raising of the dead and a final judgment where Jesus and Jesus alone is the judge. And we could look at that and fear that day. Think, how, what verdict is going to be declared over me? What, what is my destiny? Because of the cross, like because of God the Father wielding his son upon Jesus then, there at Golgotha, 2,000 years ago, we don't need to fear Jesus wielding the sword on us at his return, right? Because he's already, if you can imagine this image, he's already been pierced by it. Like he's already been pierced by the wrathful sword of God so that when he comes someday to judge, he is going to judge only his enemies, not his brothers and sisters. And so we don't need to fear the judgment of Christ. We can anticipate his return knowing that he already died for us and that God's justice is satisfied, amen? Amen. And he can help us as we walk in this life waiting for that day. He can help us to try to live justly, to handle these complicated cases. He can help us wade through those things, and he does. I want to invite you to stand. I'm going to pray for us. Thank you for listening. I want to pray for us. We're going to sing a closing song before we're dismissed. Father in heaven, we come to you. Uh, we should come to you just left to ourselves with trepidation, with fear, uh, with panic maybe even because you do see rightly. We have nothing in ourselves that we can offer you to try to uh, gain a better judgment from you. We have nothing to offer you or plead with you other than what you've already granted to us, the, the death of your son Jesus and his life and his resurrection. So, Father, may you help us to see uh, that you are a God of justice, but you are a God of mercy as well. May we revel in your mercy, and may we seek to live out your justice as we engage even in complicated situations. Be honored even as we sing now. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.